Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. So today, I'm really excited. I I have some plans this fall to because because a lot of my courses now are online i have i have some new simulations that i'm actually going to try and so i was thinking about potential guests to ask and i looked down at one of the authors of this really exciting simulation that i'm going to be using it's called the everest leadership and team simulation and the co-author is mike roberto and and he's at bryant university he's a professor of management and i thought well i need to have a conversation with him the, the, the guy who designed it, right? And kind of find out what I'm in for, what to expect, and, and what we plan to experience. So, Mike, I, I'm so thankful that you're willing to take the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Our focus in this podcast is leadership. Oftentimes, I've been interviewing a lot of leadership scholars, leadership educators, and you are among that crew. And so, maybe share a little bit about you. And again, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you, Scott. So uh, I am, uh, yes, I've been a professor now for, uh, hard to believe, 20 years, um, and I teach leadership. I have developed a lot of case studies, multimedia cases, and simulations, and you know, I really believe in active learning, having the students not just sit passively and listen to lectures, but engage in decision-making, engage in action, be able to reflect on that and learn. And so I, I, I sort of like creating new content like that. Um, and I've done that a lot over my career, and I'm glad to see others embracing the methodology. So I'm excited to hear how your first experience goes with uh, with one of those simulations, Scott. Well, so how did you even get into the the space of simulations? Just as a as a layperson, it feels it feels daunting. And so, was it something that you worked up to, or if you would just and and why Everest? That maybe we start there, and then we start with the simulations. Because I yeah, love Everest. I love anything having to do with mountain climbing. There's always great opportunities for storytelling there. So let me let me say a little about why Everest, and then I'll get back to tell the story of how I got to building simulations. So the why Everest. Um, I was a young faculty member at Harvard Business School. I had just finished my doctorate there, and I flew out to a conference out in San Diego. And I very vividly remember being at the gym in the hotel when we used to go to hotels and get on airplanes and do things like that, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I was on the treadmill and there was a, a woman, a professor from the Midwest on the treadmill next to me. And she had been in my session that I had presented a paper at earlier in the day. And she struck up a conversation and she said, you know, I know you write case studies as well as, you know, published scholarly papers. And you might want to write a case study about, I just finished this book. And it's fascinating. It seems to me your work would really inform this case. I read a book called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer yep, yep. about the 1996 Mount Everest tragedy. And shame on me, I had not read the book and I really didn't know a lot about that tragedy. But she was very convincing and persuasive. So I, when I went to the airport uh, two nights later, I was taking the red eye back to Boston. I picked up the book at the airport 
and I did not sleep a wink on that flight, that red eye home. It's I just a good book. It, it's a great book. I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And you know, Scott, I, I got enamored with the idea and I thought, and, and it really struck me because for a particular reason, which was I was going to be building this new course on decision-making for my students at Harvard. And the issue was that 95%, it seems like of the case studies at the time yeah. uh, in business school were success stories. Uh, now, by the way, some of those success stories aren't successful anymore, you know, now 20 <laughs> years later, but back then they were. So I thought, my gosh, you know, we got to write about failure. The problem is CEOs don't want to be interviewed about their failures, right? Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll write about this failure, this tragedy, and it'll be informative for students. I don't know if students will be interested in this non-business case or not. And I, as I'm working on it, I, I wrote an email. Uh, I tracked down, my research associate tracked down David Brashears. David's oh. one of the world's great climbers. Was on the mountain during the 96 tragedy, but he actually turned around when others continued to go forward. His IMAX documentary team, he and Ed Beasters turned around. So she tracked down his email and I wrote to him and uh, 60 seconds later, he replied. This is when it's better to be lucky than good, Scott, right? <laughs> Turns out his office was across the street from mine in wow. Boston uh, because he had an office at the public television station, WGBH in Boston. And at the time they were literally, their building was across the street. So he says, why don't we meet for lunch in your cafeteria? I eat there all the time because it's better food than ours. Wow. And he came to class. I, I wrote the case. It was still a draft. He came to class. The students were in awe. Yeah. Um, and um, that's how I got to Everest. And it's been a best-selling case for almost 20 years now. It's, a, it's just an unbelievable lucky circumstance kind of odd thing how I got to it well if I remember how Krakauer starts that book I mean I think I think the opening scene of the book it's it's when everything's kind of quote-unquote hitting the fan I mean he just draws you in did you ever read the there was a Russian who wrote yes. the climb did you ever read yes. that book yeah yes I think I think I've read like every version every survivor uh Anatoly Bukhrib was the Russian he wrote okay. the climb he strongly disagreed with some of Krakauer's takes, so it was important to see his perspective. And then uh, I heard from other climbers who I didn't know after I started writing about it. Um, I met Ed and David, and I've actually taught it alongside both of them uh, now a number of times. So you've learned a lot from the people who were actually there. I don't pretend to be. I'm, I love I love hiking in the outdoors, but I would never go to something like I'm not that crazy as yeah. Scott. You know, but. <laughs> But what I do think is there's a tremendous amount to learn about leadership from failure, not just success, and from high stakes, high pressure, extreme situations. So since then, I've written cases about the Columbia Space Shuttle accident and smoke jumpers who've died fighting forest fires in the, in the West, and students and executives especially. It really resonates. I think they enjoy stepping out of their own business context, you know, uh, They've just been doing so many cases about their industry or so many, so much study of their industry that they appreciate the chance to look at something a little different. Yeah. So. So what have you, so now let's talk about, you, you, you write the case. Now, how do you transform it from the case into a simulation? Because that seems like a, a Herculean task. Yeah. So I didn't initially do that. So what, let me tell you what happened is that over the course of starting back when I was doing my doctorate in the late nineties, um, up through for, for about a 10 year period, I had been increasingly starting to do some things with technology in addition to writing plain paper-based case studies. So in, during my doctorate in the nineties, I had done a, um, some, 
decision-making exercises where we thought it was revolutionary. The students would do a team activity, they would respond to a survey on the internet, and we would instantly analyze the results. And in 1996, we thought this was revolutionary. Pretty awesome, uh, right? Yeah, I was. And then in 04, 05, I did two multimedia cases, probably the most, two, two, one about Paul Levy and the turnaround of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, a, a case we published, case we published through Harvard. It's a multimedia case. And the other was a, one about the Columbia Space Shuttle accident, yeah. um, both with co-authors, with colleagues, because they were big team projects. And the, the Columbia one's particularly interesting because what we did there is um, we didn't just uh, take and put some video on the web. What we said was we wanted the students to really be in the shoes of the people making the decisions. So what we did is we identified six people at, at NASA who were crucial at different levels of the organization during that accident. And what we did is we, we figured out what they knew and when they knew it, if you will. And we captured all of the, we, we were able to uh, get meeting recordings, all their emails, because they were a public agency. We got all... And we recreated their, you know, and so literally the multimedia case shows you their emails and you're able to listen to audio reenactments of meetings they took part in. And then you come to class and what you've heard and seen isn't quite the same as what the people who played other roles heard and seen. And then you yeah. come together. So we've been working our way up, not to simulations, but to increasingly immersive experiences, Scott. And then the question actually came from Harvard Business Publishing and a, a woman named Haida Abeli. And Haida called me and said uh, she was in product development there, one of their senior folks at the time, and said, Mike, we're thinking about launching a line of simulations. And we know you're, you really like working with some of these technological solutions. Would you like to build a simulation with us? I said, sure. Uh, Amy and I went to Amy Edmondson, is my co-author. Amy and I, we co-authored the Columbia work, and she's a world-renowned scholar on leadership and teams. And Amy and I said, okay. And then the, the question of what the setting should be for the sim wow. was, I wasn't sure, you know, we were initially going to do just a business simulation and Haida said, you know, you've written this best-selling case on Everest. People know you for that. They love the case. Why don't we set the simulation on Everest? That's how we got to Everest again. Did this end up being so much more than you ever imagined? Was it a fairly oh. smooth, <laughs> did you kind of get into this and say, what have I done? It was such a complicated endeavor, right? Yeah. Because it's not like a marketing simulation, you know, where you're, you're, you know, do, putting a bunch of calculations in and your students make choices and then you decide whether sales go up if you advertise or if you cut price. Like, this is like, we're trying to predict how humans will behave. Oh my God, <laughs> that's hard to do. Scott, so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and there have been a few different iterations of it, correct? Yes. Yeah, so we, what we did, we worked with a company. So the Harvard team, there were several people from the Harvard Publishing. There's Amy Edmondson and I on the, on the faculty side. And then there was a team of people out who were the actual software developers in San Francisco, uh, a company called Forio and Michael Bean, their founder and CEO. And Michael would fly out initially. We initially did our, our meetings in person. Interesting, right? We, yeah. we, we didn't believe we could do it all virtually. So Mike actually would come out and sit with us until we got comfortable with the idea. And Amy and I had written this paper, this lead, paper for Leadership Quarterly with a colleague named Mike Watkins. You may know him, Mike, from the famous book, First 90 Days. And in that paper, we had looked at the, the challenge teams face when people come to the table with different information. And the, the, the difficulty it is to they often don't share that information very effectively. 
Yes. So the whole reason we bring teams together is to leverage different expertise. And yet what happens when teams come together is we often talk about what we all know in common. This is a phenomenon discovered by a, a, a scholar named Gary Stasser. You probably know Scott back in the 1980s. So Amy and I had written that paper with Mike. We'd written about that some. So that was in our mind. Then we had the sort of Everest setting. And then we start brainstorming. How could we use the Everest setting to study? So actually, the Everest simulation teaches a totally different set of ideas. Not totally different, but pretty different set of ideas than the case. Because okay. it dives into this information sharing problem, which really was not the issue on, 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 uh, on, in the Himalayas in 96. That was a different set of issues. Yeah. So the issue was we decided we would create some problems that teams had to solve on the mountain. And what we did is talk to some, I, I knew some climbers, right? And we did yeah. some other research. What kinds of issues do people find? Well, they, they have issues with health. They have issues with weather. They have issues with um, how much oxygen do they need, supplemental. They have issues with rope, with what time to leave in order to set your timing correct. On the, So we discovered these, and then we tested the daylights out of them, literally with paper and pencil, before we spent a lot of money coding. Once we were getting the kind of behavior we wanted, we built it. We, we built it and launched, I think it was 07, 08, Scott, the first version. Yeah. We're now on version three. And version three is the most robust because now what we have is multiple challenges. And faculty can choose which challenges they want to throw at students. What it also does is it prevents students from cheating because <laughs> they can Google it on the web, but they don't actually know what scenario they're playing, Scott. So. <laughs> They, if they use the quote on solutions they find, it doesn't work because yeah. we've mixed and matched. So we've learned something over the years. Um, and it. of course, we updated the tech, right? From 07 to today, it's, it's like, you know, night and day on the technology side. Well, so tell me about writing cases. I've, I've never even thought about that as a, as a way of producing scholarship. But of course it is. I just have never had a conversation with someone who is prolific as you are in this space. So what is it about writing cases that you really love, that you enjoy? Is it just the puzzle and putting it all together? And Yeah, you know, I, I will admit it. I mean, this is, if I had asked, if you had asked me, what's my strength, right? I'm, I, I think it is my strength as opposed to, you know, writing lots of scholarly peer-reviewed journal articles. Hey, I've done that, but I much prefer and enjoy writing cases, right? Or you know, writing books and doing other things. The case thing, I, I'm a storyteller. When I teach, I'm a storyteller. So when I present, I am. So that's why I think I love cases. I love a rich story uh, in many ways. Um, the other thing is I, I really love, I believe that teaching management, we have to be really rooted in the actual practice of it. So I, I think it's really important to, for students to be immersed in actual managerial problem situations um, so that's, I think, part of it. I mean, I, I, to be honest, how cool is it to go out there and just get to interview people? I mean, the people I've met writing these, right? Is yeah. and, and people say, how did you get in there? You know, I mean, I, I've been at Bryant now for a long time. And so you say, uh, well, what's well, one thing maybe when you're at Harvard and you can pick up the phone and say I'm at Harvard, but it doesn't matter, actually. People just love talking about themselves and they love, provided you're not writing about failure. The failure cases, I typically use public sources, right? Because... <laughs> Like I just finished one on, on the Boeing 737 MAX crisis. Uh, they did not give me the time of day, right? I wrote yeah. it based on public reports. But it's a great story. It's a puzzle, as you say. And, and I love getting the student reaction from it. And the other thing is I just think it's always fun to kind of uncover what's really going on in that organization. So, I, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes I write them based on 
something I read in the news. Sometimes it's, hey, I just, I'll give you an example. Probably one of the other cases that's gotten the most traction in the media and elsewhere is I wrote this case on Trader Joe's. Ah. Scott, why did I write it? Because I'm a freaking fan. Like I'm a crazy fan of the company. I love it. And I go, how are they so successful? Like yeah. that puzzle was interesting to me. And so I decided to study it. So that's kind of the way my mind works, if that makes any sense. But yeah. I love it. Well, I mean, you're, the world, everything happening around us, whether it's where you're shopping, they're, they're ripe. They're, they're absolutely ripe case studies for, for exploration. What are you, what, what, do you have any on, in, in your head right now that you're willing to share, that you're thinking about, something that you would just love to learn about? Well, so this, yeah, this, this Boeing one is the one that it's literally not yet published. It's being reviewed, peer reviewed right now. So that's the one that I most currently was fully immersed in because um, I was so curious about what happened with the 737 MAX. And the, obviously the other one that um, Amy and I have had a little bit of a chat about is do we write something on COVID? Uh, you know, do we write something? Uh, and not so much the political leader response because we don't, we don't want to get mired in politics. That's not our expertise anyway. But looking at how other organizations, you know, how, you know, obviously every organization has been touched by it and every leader's had to respond. So I don't know the angle yet. I've obviously been reading a lot about it, but I'm very curious. It's interesting to watch how some organizations have really thrived during this pandemic. Yeah. And some of that is just because of the nature of the business, right? So in some cases, just our, our customer buying habits shifted in a way that really helped some companies and hurt others. But some of it is, you know, seems to me about how organizations mobilized yeah. and were led. So I'm curious to look at that. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I'm, that's my current, one of my current areas of interest. Well, we see that. We see that at all levels, even, even in our local community, whether it's the local arts organization that very quickly hustled they had some they had they they innovated they were creative and they stayed relevant and then there were other arts organizations that just they were stalled and everything was canceled and and it's fascinating to watch it play out there's an organization i'm in northeast ohio i'm in cleveland and there's a there's a wonderful french restaurant in our community called edwin's Edwin's is the founder. It stands for Education Wins, and it's a restaurant and leadership institute. So students are formerly incarcerated individuals who enter this, I believe it's a six-month program. And they learn butchery, they learn baking, they learn front of house, they learn back of house. Beautiful restaurant doing incredible things. People who graduate from this program, it's about a 2% recidivism rate. I'll put, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but there's a documentary. It was Academy Award nominated documentary called Knife Skills about their work. <laughs> as soon as this hit, Brandon, the founder, and I had a conversation with him. It was fascinating to hear his mindset. He, he basically, he said, well, look, right away I knew people weren't going to want French cuisine. They were going to want comfort food. So we completely restructured the, the menu and we came up with this four for 40 deal where for $40, we're going to feed four of you and they're going to be some kind of comfort food. We did some light construction in our facility so that we could have things like eggs and milk and peanut butter for people who wanted some of that. And, and their sales were up 75% year over year. When, when I last spoke with him, which was probably, it was late March, early April. 
but there was a hustle, there was a mindset, and it was, this is going to work. We're going to figure this out. We're going to rapidly experiment. I mean, as Heifetz would say, it's an adaptive challenge. No one has the answer. So they rapidly experimented. And if I could bet money on whether or not he will move that organization through this, yeah, right? That's fantastic. So I think your observation's completely accurate, right? I mean, story. But the mindset, the mindset of, of the individuals, wow. And so I think that would be fascinating from a COVID perspective and who, you know, obviously like an Amazon is positioned to do well, right? But I, I, I would even, I, I guess I'm not thinking clearly on what are organizations that maybe weren't positioned well, but they've done great. I think that's the interesting thing, right? To yeah. study Amazon or to study the companies that right, naturally th- would thrive, it's, it's more interesting to study the, the situations where someone thrived in a, in a difficult circumstance, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, by the way, why I always say when I, when I look at Everest, I look, in, I look at that IMAX team, you know, led by David and Ed, and I say, look, they're the most interesting team on the mountain because, first of all, they were the most capable team on the mountain. Ed and David being, you know, the mo- probably the most accomplished climbers on the mountain, well, Rob Hall was very accomplished, but, but Ed and David and that team was very strong and they made a different set of choices and yeah. they all survived and, you know, they, they helped with the rescue. And yet later on in that month, they got, still got to the summit. And so to me, that's always that contrast. By the way, that's something that's really important. And that's true in the simulation too, right? Contrast is important. So in the sim, the, the vivid learning, the most powerful learning comes from the fact that some teams thrive and others don't. Yeah. And then in the in the reflection, we can ask students, well, why did some teams do better than others? And try to talk through the behavior, right? And I think that's the beauty of it, as opposed to studying a company or set of companies where they're either successful or not. Here you get this, this spectrum of teams, yeah. typically. If you have six, seven teams compete the simulation, everybody's got a little different experience. And so you can compare and contrast how they did very quickly. So, you know, the yeah. key to the sim is that in a couple of hours, the students are experience a whole bunch of decisions. They get a whole bunch of feedback on how they did. They get scored. And, uh, and then we can have a great discussion about it. That's the power of something like simulation is that ability to very quickly get feedback more quickly than you could ever in the real world, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and to your point where you started with this whole conversation, the, the experiential nature of it, you, you're not going to forget that we could talk to a student 20 years later and they will remember the Everest simulation in a very different way than maybe a a traditional case that was reviewed or some other content from the class. I mean, it's just going to stick in a fundamentally different way. And I'm sure you've heard that, right? All the time. And, and, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. I hear it from all around the globe. I'm stunned when I hear stories of people who've done it. And I get these notes sometimes from former students who go on to graduate school or whatever. And they go, Hey, I didn't even know you did this. Like I ran into this like somewhere and you know, whatever it's, it is, but yeah, it is memorable. People are very proud if they do well, they are eager to tell me. And then of course, you know, they, they had their stories of failure if they didn't. I do think that's true. I think there's also the element of you gain a tremendous appreciation for how hard collaboration really is. Uh, when you go through the sim, you go, Oh, you know, it's just not some touchy feely, um, you know, you know, we're not doing, it's fun, but it's hard. Like the problems we have students solve, as I say to them, you actually have to do this thing called math to solve some of these problems. They're like, what? (laughs) This is a leadership class. What are you talking about? Right? Like, 
but it's hard, right? And we wanted it to be hard. Like we, yeah. Amy and I did not want this, but we, what we showed them is actually, and actually Amy's done this really well. Like we, we were with a group of execs in the Midwest and she walked them through one of the problems that they had stumbled on. Yeah. And she showed them that if one person alone was simply presented the data, Math wasn't hard. The problem was hard to solve. But put five people around a table with different personalities and different goals. And holy cow, all of a sudden it's hard, right? You know, and that is really cool. When we do that, we show them that the problems actually aren't themselves that hard. But when we're trying to do them in a collaborative way, it's a dose of reality we're trying to give people. It's like collaboration isn't just natural and easy. It, it, It takes really strong facilitation skills. It takes really good listening skills. It's hard to do. We hope that by showing them that, talking them through it, that helps them become better at some of those skills. I I love that perspective that this is, I think at times, factions of of the the leadership development community is, is so concerned with creating a comfortable, safe space that we can miss opportunities to highlight it, you know, it's not all chocolate bars, warm fuzzies, and it's, it's difficult. It's hard. Literally, I was on the I was on the phone before we were talking today with a leader in our community, who was sharing what he's experienced, and it's it's incredible tackle football. It's it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. So I love the fact that you're challenging the students because again, I think you're exactly right. That too is going to add to and cement that learning. It, it's just another feature that that exists within. You know what, and and what we try to, you know, Amy and I try to convey is, is uh, that the best teams, as, as Amy would argue, the best teams have a, a safe are a safe environment for where people can be candid and speak up. Yeah. And and I have argued and written about the the power and value of constructive conflict and debate. Yeah. That you know that that. But what we want to show them is right that creating a safe environment and speaking candidly and like that's not we're not talking about something where people feel comfortable in the sense that there, you know, there's no disagreement. Yeah. In fact, there is disagreement and you have to work through it. That's the whole point. Like we want people to speak candidly, respectfully, but candidly. And that, boy, that's, as you know, as our society knows, right. That's really hard to do. Like, yeah. And so the more practice we get, the better. And the beauty of a simulation is there's nothing actually at stake. Right. We're not, life and death is not really at stake. So the students get a chance, or the executives, whoever's doing it, gets a chance to practice this behavior in a, without any big negative consequences. I never have grades riding on performance in the simulator, anything like that, right? This is, yeah. we learn from it. I might ask them to write a memo reflecting on what they learned, but the, the actual scores don't mean, you know, don't mean anything, yeah. right? <laughs> we're not going to uh, fail management. If <laughs> right. So, as it turns out, they mean a lot to people, right? Oh, yeah, they, yeah. they do care. And I mean, you know, I usually give out some small prizes for the best team just to juice the competition a little more. <laughs> yeah, it's fun, but you know, but yeah, so they care anyway, but you get my point. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. So what are you working on now? What are you thinking about from a teams or a leadership perspective, what's, what's on your mind? I know that you'd mentioned the, you know, the, the question kind of puzzling around COVID and how is that impacting business, but is there anything else that you're really into? Yeah. So, you know, I, the last book I wrote, I, I focused on creative problem solving and creativity. And so uh, shifting gears from a lot of the study of like why people make bad decisions, which is a lot of my earlier work. This one was more around cr- the obstacles to good creative problem solving. The last simulation I built 
is something called the food truck challenge, which is a much shorter sim, takes a very short period of time to run. And the idea there is you compete with others and you try to run a food truck business for like five weeks yeah. and generate as much revenue. And the key is to try to figure out um, what the optimal menu uh, and location within the city combination is. There are a multitude of combinations of menu and location within the city. And the, the power of that sim is it's trying to teach people the value of prototyping and iteration, of experimentation, yeah. right? Yep. Which is, I think, key to creativity. So that's where I've been the last few years, a lot of work in design thinking. And I think I would love to, that's been successful. I'd love to do something else in that space. I think yeah. we're all desperate for creativity and innovation in whatever field we're in, and but it's hard. I hope to continue my work there, Scott. I, I, I think... What I've learned is that that while we all have seen the videos and we've read about the wonderful stories of the people with the post-it notes and how they're, you know, the reality, and you know this, Scott, teaching leadership is, is that looks so easy and it isn't, right? <laughs> yeah. And if we can figure out how to teach people to be better at brainstorming, better at experimentation, right, better at empathy, then we can all be more successful in creative problem solving. So that's where a lot of my current focus and energy is. I still will study failures. Right? I'm never going away from that. I'm, I don't know what it is. Call me strange. I, I do get obsessed with these stories of failure because I just think there's so much to learn there. I, do, I did note, by the way, there, there's a new documentary apparently out about the failed Iranian hostage rescue. Oh, I didn't, know, you, I didn't know. I haven't heard of it. I just heard it. I, don't, I think it's coming out in theaters here shortly which I'm a little bummed because I don't, I don't really want to go to the theater to watch, but uh, I guess I'll wait for it to come out on Netflix. But that, of course, scholars wrote about that many, many years ago, right? Because it happened in, you know, 40 years ago, my gosh, now. But curious to read the, or to see the news, you know, are there new revelations there? And might there be something there to teach about? Yeah. My students, of course, will have no idea what I'm talking about. I'll have well, so in the, in, in the Back of your office, I'm looking at a photo over your left shoulder. Is that the Red Sox? Yeah. Yes. I'm a Bostonian. So I. Uh... Yes. So, so, but they had their share of failure over the years. And then there was, well, Boston is what, the city of champions. I mean, yeah. They've disrupted the Cleveland Indians several <laughs> times along the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, we've been blessed. Uh, it's been a heck of a run, although now with, uh, with the goat going to Tampa, maybe the uh, the run is over. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's a great team, and and I had a perfect afternoon at Fenway. Gosh, it probably was about six years ago now, with my son and my father-in-law, and just what an incredible historic place. But talk, I mean, I think of my my son is really the person who's taught me about baseball. I didn't grow up a baseball fan. Even in that context, watching the players night after night, you know, three out of 10 and you're a success. Mm. There's a, there's a, there's a perspective there that, that has to be incredibly challenging to get around some of the time. Right. Yeah. You know, there's something about, you know, in baseball and I've coached my kids and, and the like, there is something about the ability to put behind you the failure Yeah, very quickly. That's, very hard for me. It's why I never was a good baseball player. Cause I, I can't do it. Like I got to think about it. Right. And the best players don't think about it. Right. They, they, they somehow forget about it. It's really tough. Right. I mean, but by the way, baseball is an, I did write a case years ago about the whole, whole money ball phenomenon in baseball. 
Nice. Okay. There's a lot there, right? About about the whole idea of like how decision making has shifted with statistics and with all these things and how much pushback there initially was to that movement um, in the early years. Yeah, even the, the shift and, I mean, just some recent revelations. I mean, the shift is more recent in, in the context yeah. of the game, correct? I do wonder, though, you know, whether, interestingly, all smart moves, all these things, right, paying attention to on-base percentage instead of batting average and the shift, uh, but I wonder if the game is as good anymore. Uh. Like, have we outsmarted ourselves so much that the game might not be as enjoyable anymore? I, I don't know. That As a baseball fan, I I wonder about that. But there is a lot to learn from that. Football, too. I mean, I, I do try to draw in. I don't overdo it with the sports analogies because not everybody is a sports fan. But there's some interesting things. Like, I did an analysis of uh, of in my last book of, of uh, NFL draft and, and how accurate predictions are about, you know, success. And, uh-huh. you know, the answer is, is probably you would guess. NFL first round draft picks or quarterbacks, you know, are as likely to be busts as they are to be stars. It's a uh, crapshoot. Yeah. And there's something to learn there that like, wait a second, our ability to predict performance is not nearly what we think it is. No, no, it's not. And there's a lesson there about hiring, right? As, as you might imagine, right? Around in businesses and organizations, we're trying to predict whether this person will be a good fit or whether they'll be a performer. It's really hard to do. You are, you are a curious man. I, I, love, I love the conversation with you because the, the curiosity, you must look, uh, everywhere you look, you, you, I have to imagine you're seeing opportunity. Yeah, but that's not always good, right? You know, there's an element of being disciplined I should be, right? I mean, uh, I go through these periods where sometimes I'll get myself distracted by a bunch of things, you know, and then I'm not as productive as I want to be. So it's, it's a good and a bad, right? I think... Yeah. You, you want to be, what, is, what did uh, Steve Jobs once say? Real artists ship, hmm. uh, you know? And, and so sometimes I say to myself, okay, I've got four pieces of unfinished work. Real artists ship, Mike. You need to get off your keys. <laughs> uh, so that's the downside. I think, I mean, obviously there's some value in being curious, but you also have to corral it sometimes. And I talk to my students about it. I admit that's my failing. Like, you know, yeah. I got to work on it's a great, it's a great existence, right? Because you live in the space of ex- exploration of things that wonder, that wonder you, that you're curious about, that you want to learn about. What a great, and, and then you're paid, right? How cool is that? Oh, I, you know, what did Willie Mays once say? Uh, I'd play this game for free. Yeah. I really do. I mean, you know, don't yeah. tell my university president that, but uh, I really love what I do, which is a great, you know, I think that's something that I hope my kids find. I, I've got two in college now. I, I didn't find it right away. I kind of got there eventually. You, you, Scott, clearly, you, I can tell you love what you do. I mean, I do. That's what we all hope to get to. Yeah, it, it's. I didn't. I didn't find it right away either. I think it was probably around thirty-one or thirty-two. But one, once I did, there's a there's it's jet fuel. There's there's just a lot of energy in the tank, and and that's a good way to be. It's a good way to be helping others figure that out, find that to your point, that would be a fascinating area of research. How do you help people? My wife and I often say that we kind of view our job as trying to help them figure out who they are in the world and what they're passionate about. And if we can at least be a part of that process and and help them land on and explore that, that's how we see some of our work. But it's a gift if, if, you've, if you've found it, right? 
Oh, I yeah, and I'm very grateful that I don't know whether good fortune or well, I have to credit my wife Kristen because we were getting married. I was working at Staples post MBA. Yeah, had a great job. I we were, it was back in the entrepreneurial days where the founder Tom Stenberg was still running the company, and I was talking about you know 20 years from now I'm gonna go back to grad school and become a professor. Yeah, because I had done some teaching during my MBA days and I really enjoyed it and like. And she was like, you're going to have three or four kids, kids in college. You're going to walk away from your job and go get a doctorate. Yeah, that's insane. Like, if you want to teach, go do it. Now's the time, right? We'll be poor together. (laughs) We both went to graduate school at the same time. We just sucked it up. And I'm so glad she pushed me to do it, right? Because sometimes we do that, right? We go, oh, someday I'll do that. Yep. Yep. Well, as we close out, I often will ask the guest what what you're streaming or reading or listening to. Anything that's on your radar right now? I am reading uh, a biography um, of Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. Um, you know, there's been a sort of revival of interest in Grant over the last... I love history. I like, you know, as a student of leadership, I like to read a lot of history. So I, I'd come off of uh, reading uh, a book about Churchill. I've read a bunch about Churchill over the years. I was looking for my next one, and I read some reviews of several new books that have come out about Grant. And, you know, when I was in, probably like you, when I was in middle school, high school, we remember our Grant was, he was a great general, and he was a drunk. That's kind yeah. of what we're, that's all I remember. I, you know, I didn't really remember much else. And then I started going, wow, I hear, I heard all these fascinating things. So I'm about 40% of the way through. Yeah. Um, it's a great read. And um he's a he's quite an interesting person to understand you know and to see the kind of his evolution from general to to political leader is is i'm right in the middle of that right now he's not yet president as i'm reading but that's my my serious reading yeah and anything else what what's for fun then either watching or listening or or reading anything on that radar so my parents are from italy uh my brother was born there as well i was born here in the united states and so I'm watching on Netflix with my wife uh, a mini a, a series on Medici on the Medici family. Okay, the Medici family. Sorry, as I should say it properly. I mean, I know it's not perfectly historically accurate. You know, it's kind of fun, but yeah. um, but it's interesting to read about and to kind of I mean to watch and kind of get immersed in Renaissance Florence. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. So it's uh, been a fun. We're only about a season in so far, but we're really enjoying it. Awesome. Well, Mike. I need to let you get back to writing cases and creativity and doing the incredible work that you do. I, I will send you a note after our Everest experience this fall. I'm going to be running it in a couple different sections. I just thank you for your work. I thank you for your responsiveness. You got back to me right away. We set this up and your willingness to share your experience and your wisdom. We just really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Scott. Good luck with the sim and always love to hear people's feedback and experiences. We always looking to make it better. You know, version four, Amy and I will eventually do. So uh, <laughs> let me know, please do. And, uh, and I hope the students enjoy it, right? I hope they, I hope they not only learn, but have some fun too. So. They will. They will. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Scott. Well, Mike Roberto has to be one of the most 
passionate and enthusiastic guests I've had on Phronesis. You can tell that this gentleman has a genuine enthusiasm for the work that he does. And if there's one word, I said it in the podcast, if there's one word that comes to mind for me, it's curious. You can just tell that he has this insatiable curiosity about the world, which I just greatly admire. And not only is he curious, but he's putting that into action and creating these really engaging and incredible learning experiences. Mike, I did run the simulation with my students about a week ago, and we had this just incredible debrief, and I can't wait to run it again this semester with another group. So thank you for the work that you do, sir. Uh, I hope all of you enjoyed that episode. I hope it helped spark your own curiosity. And as always, thanks for checking in. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.